and welcome to another episode of Don't Shit on the Bus. I'm your host, Adam Elmakais, tuning in all the way from Los Angeles, California, for episode number 64. And our guest today goes by the name of Eric Gardner. Now, Eric Gardner has been in the industry for a lot longer than I've been alive, but he is one of the most OG guests we've had on the podcast. And I am honored to have him today. He is a meticulous and well-crafted storyteller And I know you will agree once you hear his stories. And his stories go all the way back to the 1970s when he started touring or started his, you know, adventures in the music industry in his early 20s, mid 20s. And, you know, I'm going to let him tell most of the stories for today. But I just want to let you know there is actually not a video component to this podcast. So you are not going crazy. If you're watching this on YouTube, there is going to just be some photos as filler. And we are testing out the Spotify video as well. So let us know if that just works. Cool. The idea behind having Eric on was taking the podcast from being more of a beginner. uh, You know, we have these 101 episodes where you learn this concept and traveling more into what I would consider advanced episodes or episodes that I think people who have been touring for a long time would enjoy. And of course, we have some of those episodes sprinkled throughout the podcast. We haven't been restricted to just beginner episodes or anything like that. But this one is one that I'm really excited about. I think every musician who listens to this podcast will appreciate. You know, Eric goes back and talks about the first time a lot of things happened. And you know, we know what it looks like in its polished final form. I mean, this is 50 years later now, 2020. But what was it like back in 1970. What was it like touring back then? What did they have at the venues? And it's just, you know, I'm hoping we can get Eric back on. So please, if you like the episode, leave a review, let me know, send me a tweet, message me on Instagram, whatever it is, we want to hear about it because it's important to us that the people who listen enjoy the podcast. So let me know what you thought. And with that being said, of course, I want to thank all of our listeners, all of our supporters, all the people on Patreon, thank you so much for your weekly contributions. And welcome to our new patron this week, Penny Lane. Thank you so much to all our patrons for helping and keeping this podcast ad-free. All right, with that being said, I will let Eric take it away from here. I hope you enjoy this week's episode of Don't Shit on the Bus, and I will see you next week. Welcome to the podcast, Eric. How's it going, man? Swell. How about you? Good. It's this is the first. You're the closest to my guest I've ever been. We're still not in the same room, but we are in the same building. It's kind of weird being in another room talking to you. <laughs> um, thank you for taking a break from the current Olympics to have a conversation that I am very honored to have with you. I've heard stories from you in short spurts, and I've never felt like we quite had enough time in normal conversation for me to just sit and listen. I mean, hopefully there's time in the future for it, but thank you, man. Sure. So, I mean, before we get into it, we've talked about stories before. So I kind of came into this episode with stories that I really wanted to hear, but maybe we could give, we should catch everybody else up who's never met you before on when you entered the music industry, because I think I know for a fact it's earlier than anybody else I've ever had on the podcast and maybe even spoken to in my life. Uh, It was 1970. Oh, wow. And how did you, uh, how did you kind of, I mean, how did you enter the industry? Like what, what, where did you start? It was in radio, right? Or it was in. Not, not really. Um, I mean, the, you know, these were like the wild west days. There were, there was no, there really was no structure to it. Everybody was kind of feeling their way. 
You know, I had no intention of uh, entering the music industry. It was all just happenstance and serendipity. Yeah, it just kind of happened. It just it just started in your life. I, depending on, on your point of view, I was either right place, right time or wrong place, wrong time. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. I never thought of it that way. So what was the right place, right time for you? You were in, in the early part of 1970 was my senior year in college down in central Florida. Okay. And, and there was a there was a vibrant local band culture at that time. And. My college was in central Florida, so it was kind of a crossroads for all the bands, all the local bands that were just playing around, you know, local <laughs> circuits. And I kind of played a little bit. I played in coffee houses and st- I was in a band in, you know, in high school. Uh, it was terrible. And then, uh, and then in 66, when things kind of moved a little into folk rock, I moved from electric to acoustic and I played in, I performed in local coffee houses and stuff. Again, I was terrible. <laughs> anyway, it, it gave me a chance to meet all these other bands and because I had a place off campus and these bands started using my place as kind of a crash pad when they were crisscrossing the state. And there was one band in particular that uh, from Daytona Beach, uh, that would stay fairly often. And in the early part of May, I got accepted to graduate school in New York City. And so next time I saw that band, you know, they asked me, so you're graduating, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm going to graduate school in New York City. I had already gone up and rented an apartment. And so I gave them my contact information. I said, what are you guys going to do? And they said, oh, we're going to get in our van and we're going to drive north until we find a town with a record company. And damn it, we're going to get a record deal and, and put out a record. And I, you know, I'm thinking to myself, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> so anyway, I go to New York. It's now the uh, late spring, early summer of 70. And uh, my phone rings and it's one of the guys from the band. And he said, hey, guess what? We drove north. The first big city we came to was Macon, Georgia. And they had a little label there. And we went and auditioned. And we got a record deal. And we made a record. And guess what? We're going on tour and we're opening for Jethro Tull. And I, I said, wait a second. You know, I've seen the ads for Jethro Tull here. In fact, I had tickets for it here in New York. I didn't see your name on it. And he said, oh, well, the record company f- thought that our name was a little too bubblegummy for, <laughs> for a rock and roll blues band. So they, they asked us to change our names. Now, they had previously been called the Almond Joys, kind of a play on the candy bar. <laughs> and I said, well, so what are you now? He said, now we're the Almond Brothers. And uh, so they invited me to the show, which was at a legendary venue called the Fillmore East. Oh, nice. Run by Bill Graham. I couldn't believe it. Oh, my God. It was like magical going there and being backstage and going up to the dressing room and hanging out. And I met, you know, I met Bill and I met uh, a bunch of the people that worked there. And I kind of talked my way into a, uh, a weekend job as a stagehand. For $15, $15 a night. 
uh, Friday, Saturday, and so- Friday and Saturday. And um, every major band came through there. And so in addition to that, the reason I chose the graduate school in New York was because it was the epicenter at the time of the, of the counterculture, of the anti-war movement. It was, on the, it was on the evening news every night that another building at Columbia University got taken over by radical students. That's where I wanted to be because I was very involved from 65 onwards in college in, in the movement. And so I also volunteered on Fridays and Saturdays from midnight to 6 a.m. at a listener-sponsored free speech radio station, a legendary one in New York that was very leftist mm-hmm. and it was listener-supported. I helped out engineering their late night talk shows. So although that wasn't a hundred, you know, a hundred percent music industry, it was yeah. still radio. They had, they did have local musicians come and play live on the air to help raise money, you know, ask for donations to the station, which was unheard of back then. You just never heard live music on the radio. It was nothing like it is today. It was just talking. Like just playing. Okay. You know, they would come and, and, you know, they were basically unknown bands, local New York bands that led up to my, my actual right time, right place experience at the Fillmore a few months later, which, I, which actually got me into the music business. Well, before you go forward, I, what amazes me about the story and it's more just your life and even the band's life is how much people just made things happen. Like they're like, we're going to go on the road. We're going to find a label. You're like, I'm going to go to this college. This is going to happen. And maybe you didn't plan it out so much, but it seems, and you know, they say you, they called you on your phone, which is such a casual thing to say now, but that's not an easy thing to do back then is, you know, I mean, they had to figure out your phone number. They had to get you at a time when you were home or leave a message, obviously, but it's just, even that takes so much more effort than it does now. Yeah. I mean, obviously no cell phones, no internet, nothing. It was, uh, I'll, I'll get into that a little bit more a little bit later, maybe in terms of okay. in terms of the difficulties in logistics back then. You know, making things happen properly, not only domestically but overseas as well. It was just very challenging. Yeah, I mean, you say some things that I. It's hard to remember. It's like this is fifty years ago now. So. You say you called somebody, but that means there were a lot more went into that than Googling their name. So it's just a good note to have while receiving these stories. Yeah, as a matter, as a matter of fact, uh, area codes just, just got, had gotten phased in. <laughs> you, before that, you had to call a long-distance operator and say, please connect me to the following number in Cleveland or whatever. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. I already feel like I've just had a smile on my face this whole podcast because I feel like a kid in a candy shop. Like I, I, it's nice knowing where all these things that people do on an everyday basis now, or that eventually turned into jobs kind of came from kind of, you know, what, why they were created, what they were created to solve. And, uh, I don't know. It's cool. So think, I mean, yeah. So, okay. You're working at this free speech. Volunteering. No one got, no one got paid. Okay. This radio station, uh, rich benefactors donated, bought a church that had been desanctified or whatever it's called on East 38th Street in Manhattan 
and gave it to the radio station to set up as a studio there and broadcast from there. And it was, it, there, were, there were four radio stations around the country that were part of this free speech network, one in L.A., one in Texas, one in San Francisco. The one in L.A., I believe, is still around, although it's changed quite a bit. KPFK. And this one in New York was WBAI. And it was absolutely legendary. I mean, you know, the, the Nixon administration tried to shut it down. It was... Uh, those were quite the days. Yeah, that sounds that's wild. Okay, you're at the station and the liberal leftist station volunteering and you're working weekends at the Fillmore East and you're kind of combining culture and music and doing these things that like you said, you know, you you were amazed by this backstage. It's all new to you. Well, all, all of a sudden I'm, you know, I'm a stage hand and I'm yeah. setting up, you know, all the equipment for every band you can possibly think of in the 60s, you know? List them off. I want to hear some. I mean, name one and, and they were played there, you know? <laughs> That's fair. I'd probably be embarrassed at the lack of bands I knew from the 60s. I learn a lot from you. And I know you probably, you know, I've had some times where you were like, you don't know who this is. And it's, it's true. I was not raised on rock music like Natalie was. I wish I was. So I had that history. I got a lot to learn. But, you know, there, there is a story that I've heard a part of that starts from the station, correct? And that was the night that, well, I don't want to give away anything, but you had a, I like, well, when you tell the stories, you tell them so well, you, you craft them so, and I know this is what you're good at, but you didn't give away the name of the artist for the whole rest of your story. And the whole time I was like, who is it? Who is it? And then you gave it away at the end. And I was like, all right, Eric, you got me. You're a good storyteller. So you're working at this station and, or excuse me, you're working at the Fillmore and bands are coming through and eventually, well, I'll let you tell the story, right? An artist asks you to like, take them to radio to your station that night, right? Uh, well, almost. Yeah. Tell me the right way. Yeah. The, uh, one of the weekends, there was a double bill, which Bill Graham often did, uh, that you'd never see. You know, because the Fillmore was a relatively small venue. It was only about 1,800 seats. So, you know, if you're a band, you have a, your choice of playing a couple nights at the Fillmore, maybe a, a, the Felt Forum, which is the smaller venue inside Madison Square Garden. That's about 6,000. Or, or Madison Square Garden, which is about 16,000. Or Nassau Coliseum out on the Long Island which is also about 16,000. There were so many choices of venues, depending on the ticket selling power of the band. But people were drawn to Bill Graham because he was so legend, such a legendary promoter. He was able to book bands that should have been playing Madison Square Garden, but they stayed loyal to Bill. So one weekend, it was a double bill. It was a Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane you know, two Bay Area bands. And, uh, you know, I couldn't have been more excited because I was a huge, huge fan of both of them. So it's the afternoon of the show and they're, both bands are on stage doing a sound check one after the other. And so I went, I saw Jerry Garcia and Paul Kantner, who's the leader of the airplane. I saw them just kind of talking to one another casually. So when I went up to them, and I said, listen, guys, I'm, ju I'm just working the stage here. 
but I do help out at WBAI after midnight. And they both looked at it. They both knew what WBAI was because there was KPFK in San Francisco. So they knew the sister station. And they said, wow, we love we love the free speech radio concept. I said, well, listen, you know what would really, really be amazing is if maybe a couple of you could bring an acoustic guitar and come over to the church with me after the show and maybe play a couple songs on the air. And that would raise a lot of money for this for the station. And they both look at each other and say, sure, we'd love to do that. I said, wow, cool. So now the show's over, and you know it's about midnight, and I go to the dressing room, and I, you know, I, I find I find Jerry and Paul. I say, guys, you want to come over? And I was totally, totally shocked. I was expecting just the two of them, or maybe Bob Weir, <laughs> maybe Paul Kentner and Bob Weir, or, or maybe Jack and Yorma, you know, because they had a, a subset band called Hot Tuna. Uh, which were a subset of the airplane. But anyway, the entire dad and the entire airplane walk out of the venue with me carrying their instruments. Fillmore East was on 2nd Avenue and, and 6th Street, and the church is on 38th Street and a couple avenues over, a couple avenues west of there. And so there are like 14 of us walking up the street, you know, and it took us about half an hour to get to the station. I walk in and, you know, the, the jaws dropped, you know. Oh, my God. <laughs> and they played for hours. They played for like three or four hours acoustically. And again, this was so shocking because to the audience as well, because one just did not hear that back then on the radio. I want to say, like, what gave you because you what gave you the idea to ask them to play live music? Well, because I thought I'd be a hero raising money at the station. Yeah, that's but that's crazy. Well, good job. <laughs> so anyway, the money, the phones rang off the hook, making pledges and they raised so much money. It was just ma so magical. And also, you got to remember these days, if you love a band and you, or you love a solo artist or whatever, chances are when they go on tour, you can buy a meet and greet upgrade and actually meet them. Back then, a chance meeting on the street or running into somebody, a star, a rock star, just by accident, you know, your heart leap. I mean, it was like, you know, uh, meeting a gigantic movie star. It just didn't happen. You were never in their presence and just sitting on the sideline and uh, you're in the studio and listening to all this and being in the same room with them was just overwhelming for me. And in some cases, I must admit, it still is. You know, that luster really never wears off for really iconic, legendary musicians, for me anyway. And I think it's a shame that that, that has been diluted over the last 20 years or so. Because it's no big deal meeting someone now because you can pay to do it. That's just not the same. I mean, it's cool to yeah. get a picture and everything, but, you know, it's just not the same as, as it happen, happening organically. Anyway, so let me just cut there and leap ahead about four or five months. Can I tell you something really fast? I wrote down some notes because I really wanted to tell you. I wish... 
I could see a photograph of you guys walking from the Fillmore to the station. That to me, well, the remember there were no, you, I know. you don't carry a camera with you back then. You don't, you don't have a phone with a camera. If I, if I, I do, you know, I, I would love to have had some of the technology at least that we have today and documented the last 51 years, some of the highlights, you know, but alas, but we have you to tell the stories. So it, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of nice that we we're deprived the photographs, but we get to hear it from your story, your, your mouth, which is, you know, to me, similar to not paying for a meet and greet. This is, you know, this is the, the rarity that is uh, running into somebody organically just in story. So I, I really enjoy it. And I, I like how you talked about, you know, these people and what it felt like to be in a room with them all this time back then, obviously, the Dead went on to become a massive band, and they, I'm sure they were a big band then as well. But did it still feel the same being in a room with them before they were, quote unquote, as legendary as they are now? Or could you just feel it even though they were on a much smaller size? Well, I was such a fan anyway. But yeah. it, was, it wasn't just the feeling that night. It was being on the stage of the Fillmore for all those months before that summer, which is when I, which is the next part of the story. But uh, it was just, you know, when the house lights went down and it was completely dark, the backstage culture, it was like being on a different planet. It was just so, <laughs> it was just so special. It was just so, you know, really, uh, I've never really sat down and, and, uh, and try to find the words to describe. I can only say magical. It was just unbelievable. And it didn't have to be a band I was a huge fan of. It was just being backstage in a rock and roll culture. Yeah. When no one else was, you know, back then, nowadays backstage is filled with people with with all access laminates and all this kind of stuff. There wasn't any of that back then. There weren't even laminates. The backstage pass at the Fillmore was a was a little piece of paper that you got. <laughs> you know, there was no security. There was uh, it was what Rousseau and Thomas Hobbes and John Locke described in the early 18th century. They were political philosophers. It was what they described as the state of nature before humankind coalesced into what we now know as civilization. And, and those three philosophers on th from different countries coincidentally came up with the same phrase that we all started out, started out in the state of nature. And then in order to form communities, we entered into what they all called a social contract. Well, backstage was a state of nature. The social contract part hadn't happened yet. It was still just so free and unstructured. And there was a kind of an unspoken code, you know, things you did, did do or didn't do that were frowned upon or, or expected. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you were part of this inner sanctum that was so exclusive. Yeah. 
I mean, it sounds like a movie, like, but in, in a good way, you know, I'm sure they tried to capture in the movies and it doesn't get close to just hearing you talk about it. It probably doesn't even get close to how it really felt. But as I hear you describe these things, you know, I take a combination of my life experiences and things I've seen on the movies and I do my best to paint a picture, but I almost need to shut my eyes and just listen to it from your, from your mouth because you're good at that. <laughs> Okay, I cut you off a little bit, but I wanted to, you know, jump forward five months. Yeah, a few, you know, months, few, months, few months later, few months later. I, again, I'm sitting in my rat-infested, cockroach-infested, $37.50 a month apartment in Spanish Harlem. And it's the beginning of the summer, the end of my first year of graduate school. Summer is starting, so my classes... We're stopping in a week or two. I get a call again. Phone rings, and it and it was and the person said, "I'm calling from San Rafael, California." I said, "Yes," and they said, I, "I'm at the Grateful Dead office. Am I speaking to the person who brought the dead in the airplane up to WBAI a few months ago?" I said, "Yes," and uh, apparently they got my number from the from Bill Graham. And uh, they said, listen, the dead in the airplane are going out on a stadium tour this summer. And they had such a great time giving, you know, free music to the people, you know, uh, via radio. They had such a great time doing that. They wanted to know if maybe you wanted to come on the road and arrange in each city that after they played their concert, they go to a local radio station and do the same thing. And I, mean, I couldn't believe my ears. I said, my goodness, of course. So a few weeks later, I meet up with them. The tour starts on the East Coast. And by the way, this is the first stadium tour since the Beatles in 66. You know, it was in the early embryonic stages of touring. There was no, nothing sophisticated there were no big PA systems. There was, there were, you know, certainly no video, and uh, and this had not been done before. When the Beatles did it, you know, they traveled in a in a van or a charter plane from city to city, and they used the stadium PA system, like where they announce, you know, who's coming up to bat. That that was how you heard the concert. There were no monitors. Monitors had not been conceived of yet state so they could hear themselves on stage they could never hear themselves on stage and so but the dead had always been known not so much the airplane but the dead had come to, by that time come to be known for their over-the-top extravagant almost mad scientist kind of audio technology they had their guitars custom made by a company called alembic so, for instance, Phil Lesh's bass guitar, which has four strings, as you know, each string had its own pickup and its own 30-foot-high stack of bass cabinets. Each string was individually controlled. Uh, I mean, it was insane, the stuff that they did. I, I, I can tell you one other story a little bit later if we have time. As an, as an example of how over the top they went. But anyway, so it turned out that this tour what consisted of, I think, four or five tractor trailers, you know, semis with the equipment. 
and the lights. And I can tell you also a story a little bit later about how innovative the lighting was. But there were 104 people on the road. And that's so so there were six tour buses, uh, you know, that and most of that was crew. Those are some packed buses. Yeah, but but nobody soiled them, I can assure you. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but anyway, the first show the first show was at a, a stadium in Hartford, Connecticut called Dillon Stadium. You know, about not a big stadium, maybe 40, 40 45,000. Anyway, we pull up with all these trucks and all these buses, and we pull up into the entrance, the loading entrance, and there's no one there. There's no one to unload the trucks. There's no stage set up. <laughs> it's the middle of summer. It's like 95 degrees, 98% humidity, no waters, no food. And I'm thinking to myself, this, you know, well, I'm new to this. You know, I didn't know it was the first stadium tour ever. But, uh, but just the logistical per- part of me is thinking, this isn't right. It shouldn't be this way. So I thought, well, I, I, but I really shouldn't be presumptuous and say anything. The next day, we muddle through. And the next day, we get to Roosevelt Stadium in New Jersey. And it's the same thing. <laughs> no one and so... I finally kind of man up and I go up to Jerry and Paul again. And I say, hey, guys, listen, I know it's not my place. I'm here to take you to radio stations after the shows. But has anybody maybe ever thought about calling ahead, you know, and saying we got 104 people. We need a stage this big and this high off the ground. We need this many people to unload the trucks. We need this many meals. And we need trailers for dressing rooms. So none of this was advanced at all. You just showed up and they expect to make it. Like, what did people expect? No one thought about it. They, you know, they, it was hard to get, it, it was hard to exit their, their hallucinogenic haze. You know, they just, no one was thinking like that, you know. Yeah. You know, the, just no one was thinking, period. <laughs> so they looked at each other. They said, you know, that's a pretty good idea. Why don't you do it? That'll teach you to speak up. (laughs) So I said, sure. And I sensed an opportunity. So that was the day I formed my company, uh, or the first incarnation of my company called Panacea Entertainment. Well, now it's Panacea Entertainment. Back then, it was kind of a shorter version of it. But uh, (laughs) and remember, I was making, I was paying 30-something dollars a month in rent. I was penniless. I was buying 20-pound bags of lentils to, to eat each month for eating lentil soup. And I would make tomato soup going to a diner and make, at the condiment counter and pouring hot water and ketchup and crackers and salt and pepper. I mean, I was literally penniless. And uh, so I said to them, how about $100 a show? And they said, Sure. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> You're like, I should have asked for more. They said yes. <laughs> I mean, yikes. And so, you know, the tour was set up in kind of segments, you know, two weeks and then a break and yeah. then another two weeks. And so I decided I would write down r- rather than trying to get all the promoters on the phone, which was really hard to do back then. I decided I would write everything down. The 
there were two supporting acts on the tour. It was a four-act tour. The two supporting acts were the new riders of the Purple Sage, which was a kind of a, a deadish kind of band, and more of a psychedelic kind of deadish kind of band called Commander Cody and the Long Lost Planet Airmen, and they were all Bay Area bands. So because the new riders of the Purple Sage were on it, I wrote this thing out. I showed it to Jerry and, and Paul. I said, look, here's what I'm asking for. Do you want to add anything? And I called it at the top, which Jerry thought was hilarious, the new rider of the perfect stage, you know, kind of a play on the you know new riders of the purple stage. But then I thought, well, how do I get this to the promoters? Do I want to mail it? I mean, there was no FedEx. There were no faxes. There was something called a telex where you got a keyboard, you got a tape. It was a long tape and you put a big roll of tape. When I say tape, it's not magnetic tape. It's a fabric tape. And you put it and you feed it through this thing and you got a keyboard and you type out what you want to type. And every time you type something, it stamps little dots, little, it's like Braille on the, okay. on the tape. And then when you finish typing, let's say it's a two-page thing, you might have a 12-foot long tape, and then you feed it back in, and you type in a code to another telex machine and press start. And then that tape goes through, and the telex machine on the other end reads what's going through and prints out what you've written. And so I had a telex installed in my apartment in Brooklyn, a telex machine actually installed, which is unheard of. And I got, I did call around to all the promoters' offices and got their telex numbers. And so that's how I sent out the, the what, what apparently is the very first uh, tour rider. And so word kind of spread, you know, a couple of, a couple of, of uh, industry magazines like Billboard and couple of others, you know, did a little story on what I was doing because it was news. I mean, it was brand new. And, um, you know, within a year or so, I had another 15 or 20 clients because I, then I started, then the dead, dead said they wanted to go to Europe. Oh, God. And uh, I said, oh, wow. So I went to, I went over there to physically advance every, every date. And Europe was way ahead of us in telex, in, in telex technology. Everybody had one. So, so, oh, yeah, the first the first name of the company was Panacea Tour Coordination. And then when I went to Europe for the dead, I changed it for the second time to Panacea International Tour Coordination because I, <laughs> I could declare myself an expert because no one was going over there. No one was doing anything. So there was no one to say there was no right way or wrong way. It was just trailblazing. And anyway, I started to get more and more clients. And over the next couple of years, uh, by 1974, several of my clients realized that what I was doing for them went well beyond coordinating their tours. It got into what we now would consider artist management because I got the idea, for instance, of helping to finance the a European tour by contacting the European music publishers and asking them for an advance for the band to help deficit finance the, the tour because touring in Europe was so expensive back then. And so 
back then there was no official profession, artist management. Usually the band's managers were like their brother-in-law or their drug dealer or their sister. <laughs> or their sister's boyfriend. So uh, two or three of the bands asked if I would, if they had existing management, they asked me if I'd partner with them. And a few of them asked me if I would just be their manager on my own. And by 74, third name changed Panacea Management. And, uh, and then, so by 74, I was, when asked what I did for a living, I said I was, you know, I was a talent, I did talent management. Anyway, there. I mean, there are a lot of little kind of noteworthy uh, little things that happened on the Dead Tour and the, or this tour, that tour, that, that were indicative of how, how pioneering and how, how Wild West-ish everything was. And we were just making up the rules as we went along. That, that was what led up to pretty much what I do today, except for my television and film stuff. It's so wild to think about. I can't imagine a band existing without a manager of that when you're on that level. Like, and it, it also, you know, it's inspiring to me to hear about how much you kind of, what you trailblazed because it was such a wild, wild west. Like you really have to think outside the box a little bit, or maybe even in your case, just think. Create the box. Yeah, but just to give you an idea about the you know about how unsophisticated management was back then, you look at Brian Epstein, the manager of the Beatles. You know, he ran a record store and then told the Beatles he wanted to manage them after seeing them play a club in Liverpool. But I'll give you an example. He was a terrible manager. I mean, I'll give you an example of how terrible he was. When the Beatles did their first American tour in 64, you know, they were they had the top five records in the in the top 10 in America already. And uh, and they were massive, just massive. You know, JFK, I mean, uh, at that time, uh, I guess it was LaGuardia Airport. JFK wasn't even open yet, I don't think, uh, you know, was shut down because of the crowds to greet them when their plane landed from England. I mean, they were it, it was just Beatlemania was was literally mania here. But anyway, so at Brian had not come over here yet. And so, you know, this, the uh, 64 tour went on sale and sold out immediately. You know, Hollywood Bowl, <laughs> Hollywood Bowl, et cetera. So he came over and he hired a new uh, a U.S. lawyer named Nat Weiss to advise him. And that, in their first meeting, said, have you thought about merchandising? And Brian apparently said, what's merchandising? What do you mean? <laughs> and and Nat explained it to him. And Brian said, yeah, I'd love to do that. And Nat said, I'll introduce you to a, a company that could make you a proposal for, for tour merchandise. Brian said, great. So he had the meeting and the guy from the merchandising company said, okay, you know, they agreed on a figure and they shook hands. Okay, uh, you know, when you get here and you start selling stuff, the split is 90-10. And Brian said, that sounds terrific. They shook hands. And when Brian got here and the tour started, Brian thought that the Beatles got the 10%, not the 90%. That was going to be my question. Did he mess up? Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He started a company called Seal Tab, 
which was Beatles spelled backwards for merchandising. <laughs> you know, and he, you know, he just assumed that 10% was, wow, what a great deal I made, you know, <laughs> just ridiculous. How do you know this story, Eric? Like, where is this one? Well, well it- uh, you know, even I later learned because I, you know, I got to know the four Beatles pretty well. And uh, I later learned they didn't know that story. I read it. I read it in Nat Weiss's memoir. Oh, wow. That's wild. Oh, man. There's so much like I have a feeling we're going to have to do this again, Eric. If you still like me after we're done and you're like, oh, that was a that was an okay experience. I would love to have you back because every time you tell a story, I'm just I'm ready to go get a drink and just sit down for the rest of the night and listen. It's you're so good at it. And I enjoy it so much. And that's coming from somebody who doesn't know much about this stuff. I can't imagine for somebody who knows all these artists and loves them and, uh, you know, loves the industry. I love the industry. That's why I think it's so cool. Okay. Well, before I, I wanted to bring you back because there's a few things you mentioned that you will tell me a story about later. And I hope that meant later this podcast and I wrote them down. Oh, okay. What are they? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The two are the, the first one is you wanted to tell me an over the top story about the dead. Uh, in regards to their staging technology. Yeah. 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 So let, can we do that one first? Assuming you're done with the story you're just telling. No, I have a ton of Beatles stories, but yeah, we could do a Beatles story. So like I said, the dead always did stuff over the top. So in 70, I think it was 72 on the 72 tour. That tour was 72. I looked up the shows and everything. There's actually photos of it. I'll show you. It's pretty cool. One of the big problems initially when stage monitors started becoming a thing and the bands could finally hear themselves perform. One of the big problems was feedback, you know, and sometimes, you know, ear blood inducing feedback in the the audience if it's not done properly, you know, because uh, people didn't understand what caused it. So they said, hey, what if our back line could be our monitors? Because our back line is coming at it like 120 decibels. That, was, that would, it would be impossible because the vocal mics, by definition, would be in front. And every time they experimented, there would be feedback, feedback, feedback. And so one of their audio engineers or sound engineers, and I use the word, word, the term engineer rather loosely. Like the managers. He read something about an audio engineer theorist. This guy Haffler thought if you could find two perfectly matched microphones where the graphs were very, almost exact and wired one of the microphones out of phase with respect to the other microphone, that that could possibly cancel out feedback. And so they set up this back line where, like I said, every pickup on Phil's guitar had a 20, 30-foot tall stack of, of 24-inch bass speakers. And uh, each guitar had the same thing. And, and the drums had the same. Each drum had its own stack. And they played in front of it without doing any vocals. And they said, yeah, this is the volume we want. We can hear ourselves. So they sent me to Austria, <laughs> to the company that made Sennheiser microphones. 
and my job, and there was a certain microphone they wanted called an ECM-22 that uh, Sennheiser made. And they sent me to the Sennheiser factory, and I spent a week there doing nothing all day but opening boxes of ECM-22s and holding the frequency response graph up to a window to find the most closely matched graph. And then I take, take those two and put them aside and get as many pairs as I could that were super closely matched. And I brought them back, and they built my plastic, what they custom-made plastic microphone holders that kept both both microphones perfectly parallel to each other. And it worked. No feedback. And they could hear the vocals perfectly. And uh, until we got to Madison Square Garden. <laughs> now, in Madison Square Garden, it was the, at that time the most highly unionized venue in the country. So when you arrived there to do a concert with your truck, you had one union the Teamsters get opening the doors to the truck and rolling the equipment on wheels down the ramp of the truck to the foot of the stage. Then you had a second union, the IATSE, haul the stuff up on the stage and put it in place. Then you had a fourth union, the IBEW, plugging everything in. You weren't allowed to plug in your own stuff. The union had to do it. That's a lot of unions. So the dead finish their sound check with this setup that I just described. And now it's time, to, you know, you have to break down, you set up for sound check, but then you have to break it down after sound check because when the show starts, the opening act has to set up first. And the IBW, having not been warned, the, the system was still hot and the IBW saw two microphones and they took them apart. And the, oh, no. the sound... I don't think there has, I, there, if there was a Guinness Book of World Record category for the loudest, most piercing, dam, ear damaging feedback, you just can't imagine. So after that, whenever we played a union house where the IBW had a contract, we had to warn them beforehand don't touch, you know. It's like the, in Ghostbusters, don't cross the streams, you know? <laughs> oh, man. That's wild. Ugh. I, as you tell the stories, I try to look up stuff really fast. And I looked up how David Halfer and it was called the Halfer hookup. Now that I remember, I told WBAI about Halfler, the radio station. Yeah. And they did a special concert. It wasn't a rock concert. I think it was Igor Kipnis, the, the Bach harpsichord suite, alive <laughs> on the air. But anyway... Halfler had this thing called the Halfler three-channel yeah. concept where instead of an out-of-phase microphone, you hooked up, a, you had stereo left and right hooked, speak at home, your stereo left and right hooked up normally, but your rear speaker was hooked up out-of-phase with respect to the other two. In other words, again, positive and negative reversed. And so WBAI announced for a week, hey, if you want to listen to this with three channels, you know, super stereo, you know, left, right, rear, here's how you do it. And then on the night of the show, they broadcast in three channels, first time in history. And I remember uh, it was an amazing experience having a rear channel, a, a dedicated separate rear channel of sound. It was just family. But that's nothing to do with the dead, sorry. It was a spinoff of Halfler. 
No, I, I enjoy knowing how your brain works. It's like, it's just a tree, right? It's just like one thing happens and then we got three stories off that. And I like how deep we can go. It's endlessly interesting. Okay. I think the other one you might've written down was uh, the, the lighting innovation. Yes. That is the other one. Okay. So uh, now when you go to a concert, all the lights move. You don't think about them changing color. They're all pre-programmed, uh, you know, to do different presets. But back then, if you wanted a... Uh, if you wanted to do different color washes on stage, you had what are called gels, uh, transparent, well, translucent sheets of plastic in like all the different Pantone colors, you know, every variation of blue, every variation of red, variation of green, yellow, etc. And when you design the lights for a concert, you had to, had to if you wanted multicolors, you had to have four or five times the number of lights you might have 500 lights hanging from the trusses because when the lighting designer wants a red wash only the only the ones with the red gel would come on or if you want to highlight the keyboard player and the keyboard player's signature color is blue then you've got to have four or five blue what are called specials focused on the keyboard player and you, you'd have two or three tractor trailers just of lights. And uh, it was just so there, the lighting designer of the Grateful Dead, still working today, not for the dead, but still working, I think, in photography now. Her name, the greatest name for a lighting director, Candace Brightman. Her boyfriend was one of the stage managers and on the lighting crew named Ben Haller, and his distinction was he had both his canine teeth uh, shaped so they looked like vampire fangs, big red beard. But anyway, Ben got this idea that he worked on during the off time, and he took a normal par can, that's a type of lighting instrument, and he worked with iron, you know, he did iron work. So he, he created a fitting on the end of the light so that there were five different gel containers and they were on, they could each lift up and go back down, lift up and go back down. They weren't fixed against the light permanently like the old fashioned kind were. And then he got, then he got a, a set of hydraulics and he created a set of hydraulics and hooked a hydraulic hose up to each one of the lighting, each one of the gel casings. And he tested it and he showed the band. The band was stunned. Wow, for the first time ever, it was, it was a color changer for lights. In other words, at the board, you had a, a hydraulic contr controller and you pressed a button for the blue hydraulics and all the other colors lifted out and only the blue stayed. It was just amazing. So that, the dad had the first, first color changer and Ben never patented it or anything. You know, but yeah, he wasn't that kind of guy. But but it was just an unbelievable talk about outside the box thinking. And he was, you know, like a real crazy rocket scientist kind of guy who was actually had the skills to make it. And it wasn't until years later that that the technology developed where the lights could change on their own without the hydraulics. It's wild, like. When you were talking earlier, you were explaining the the Grateful Dead and, and team, you know, you more or less said like 
they're in their hallucinogenic kind of mindset. And then you came in and did some, the other people would do some thinking and I'm just picturing the person, I, I forget what it was his name, Ben. Is that what you just said? Yeah. Ben bringing the lights and showing them and everybody's being like, wow, <laughs> like that must've been mind blowing, especially for where they're exist, the world they're existing in, you know, that's crazy. You know, the, the dead culture, a lot, a number of the big bands cultures were so sophisticated musically. And so I keep saying magical, but they each had an element of dumb and dumber in them. <laughs> hey man, all the, every, all the, it's like, I always think of playing video games or at the beginning you can, you know, you have power, luck, strength, you know, intelligence. You got, you only get like 10 skill points and you got to put them somewhere. And some people get all the skill points in one area <laughs> and that's okay. Cause we need those people. They come up with, you know, extremely, they make great music. Okay. The very last wretched, at least today, unless you have something else you want to touch on the very last wretched excess, uh, dead thing was next door to the Fillmore East on second Avenue. It's still there. The Fillmore is not there anymore, but they, this is, there was a Second Avenue deli, which was just a tiny, tiny little walk-in hole in the wall with like six stools and a counter. One of their specialties was cabbage soup, which uh, all the, you know, all the Jewish delis have. Anyway, the dead fell in love with cabbage soup. <laughs> I mean, they fell in love with it. Oh, well, actually, this, this is actually an adjunct to another story. When I said there was 104 people on the road, one of my jobs was also after I got assimilated into the into the family, one of my jobs was to go a day ahead to each city. This was part of my advance when on future tours and ask the promoter for the three best steakhouses in town. And I would have <laughs> breakfast at one of them, lunch in another and dinner at another my job was to pick the best steak and have 100, 103 steak dinners delivered to the backstage before the show. However, however, Candace was a vegetarian. So it was 103 steak dinners and one lobster dinner. So that was, that was a part of my catering responsibility. Now, now with the cabbage soup, the dead fell in love with the cabbage soup so profoundly. It was, they said, we got to have cabbage soup on the road. And I said, there are Jewish delis in every city. No, no, no. It has to be Second Avenue deli cabbage soup. So I would have uh, the Second Street, Second Avenue deli prepare barrels. We got barrels of cabbage soup. And because they're, you know, the, the sauce, the, uh, the broth is sweet and sour, heavy on heavy on vinegar and preservatives. It kept pretty well. And uh, so anyway, we had several gallons shipped to every show so they could have cabbage soup during the day. That's amazing. I know. You like cabbage soup? Were you stoked? Believe it or not, uh, yesterday I ordered the food equivalent of cabbage soup and I have it in my fridge now. It's stuffed cabbage, sweet and sour stuffed cabbage. So from, the, from my local deli which has cabbage soup. I do like cabbage soup. Eric, let's call Second Ave and be like, hey, it's Eric. I know it's been 50 years. 
but we want a barrel. We know you could do it. We're in LA. Just ship us a barrel just for old times. You know, it's funny when I first told Natalie, my daughter, that story, she Googled Second Avenue Deli and found it. Yeah, of course, it's not the same as it used to be, but it's still, That's amazing. It's still there in name. I Googled Cabbage Suit Grateful Dead to see if this story existed on paper yet, and it hasn't. I'm happy to solidify it from, from your mouth to the podcast space. We've got Cabbage Soup. That's a good story. Man, I am jealous of the amount of steak you got to intake because that's the best way to have steak is like a good steakhouse. Like when it's done right, are you rare? Rare steak? I'm more, I'm, I'm beyond rare. I'm alive. <laughs> what I mean is I, I am black and blue, so undercooked, so rare. I can never get it exactly. It's always a little bit too done for me at a restaurant. Yeah, just you just have to look at it and be like, Whenever you, whatever you think you're doing, do less, try less. I'm making your job easier. Just don't cook it. Just make, just heat it up a little bit. Nothing wrong. Nothing wrong with steak tartare. Oh yeah. Oh, I know you like that raw. That's great. Yeah. That is a good point. Well, Eric, we're a little bit over an hour, so I think we'll call it for today, but thank you so much. And you got to come back because you, I live live here. You live in the podcast? No, yes, you do live here. All right, I will come back <laughs> and we'll talk. I have more stories because I have a feeling our listeners are going to love this. Everybody's going to love this. And maybe we can have a, a reoccurring, you know, stories from Eric possibility in the future, assuming you can, uh, if you can put up with me, you know, I will happily listen. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's uh, a marriage made in heaven. We share the same barber. <laughs> That is true. My guy's name is Gillette. What's yours? Yeah, Schick. Oh, nice. We should all hang out sometime. I feel like they get along real well. They're both pretty sharp, you know? All right, cool. Thank you so much, Eric, for joining me on this Saturday. I appreciate you. We do have one, you know, question we ask every guest, which I'm going to ask you, even though I imagine your answer might be a little more complicated. Oh, dear. (laughs) We just ask everybody, you know, in current day, shower shoes or no shower shoes. When you toured, I don't even know if you guys took showers, but did you wear shower shoes? Oh, okay. just... I've never heard of shower shoes. <laughs> That's the best answer there is. Nowadays, people wear shower shoes sometimes at the venues to protect their feet. I never did, you know, when they get in the shower because it might be gross or something. So I've never heard of shower shoes as a good answer. All right. Well, thank you so much, Eric. I appreciate your time and I look forward to hearing more stories from you. Those were a delight to listen to. And uh, yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, I'll come back anytime. Thanks. All right. Sounds good. All right. Take care, man. Bye-bye.